Hi, I'm Haley. Hi, I'm Adam. And welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. But first, make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always email us at Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. Today's guest is Stephanie Valencia. Stephanie is a national leader at the nexus of politics, technology, and leadership development. She's run issue campaigns and built coalitions in both the private and government sector. And she's currently a geopolitics fellow. We are so lucky to have Stephanie on the podcast today. Stephanie Valencia, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. You started your career as a Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute Fellow for the Senate Democratic Steering Committee. How did you find that opportunity, and how did you know it was a good first step? Well, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute Fellowship um, is a fellowship that is for recently graduated undergrads and graduate students. Uh, to come apply what they learned in college or in graduate school in a real life policy environment. And so we were able to work in either a uh, congressional office or a nonprofit group that did like congressional advocacy. Um, and for me, I think coming to DC, one of the best, kind of the, the most important reasons I took the, that fellowship was because it was paid. Um, you know, I didn't come from a lot of money and coming to DC and moving here and trying to figure out like how to pay rent and take a free internship at the time, like just was not an option for me. Um, and so the fellows of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute Fellowship really opened that door of opportunity for me to get really good experience, but also getting paid and having like a little bit of a structure of uh, a cohort of similarly aged, similarly experienced people who were all coming to DC for the same thing. Actually started my fellowship, as you mentioned, at the Steering and Outreach Committee at the time. Hillary Clinton was the chair of it, um, which was very cool. Um, so I got to know her and Harry Reid, who at the time was the Senate Majority Leader in 2004, which makes me feel really old. <laughs> well, Long time. Well, from there, um, you went to work in several congressional office, offices um, for members ranging from Colorado to Connecticut to Illinois to California. Um, how did you adapt to those different roles? Well, what was interesting is I think um, as a congressional staffer, um, there are a lot of different roles you can play. You can either be a policy person and really understand like Medicare and like healthcare, or you can understand the energy sector or the tax system. Or you can be kind of a more cross-functional player, which I was, which is I did. I built relationships, and it was either relationships with other members when I worked in House leadership for Rahm Emanuel in 2006 and John Larson um, as part of the House Democratic Caucus. My job was to go work on behalf of the House leadership, working with different members to make sure they had the resources that they needed to do their jobs. Um, and that they were taking advantage of all of the tools that were available to them as members of Congress. And then I became a press secretary, which was also like a really kind of cross-functional role. I had to know like a little bit about a lot of different things. And it helped me learn how to communicate in very kind of punchy, understandable language for reporters and the gener general public, how to communicate some of these very arcane policies in a way that they understood that their member of Congress was working for them. So I never was like a deep policy person, but what I really got to see is one, I worked for a member from Colorado, I worked for somebody from California, that the different ways that they uh, looked at different issues based on who their district was made up of. And two was like as working in 
leadership understanding the resources that members needed to do their jobs well. Um, and I think both of those gave me a really good perspective on how to think about outreach and engagement and communicating messages and engaging the public. So with all those experiences, you ended up making the switch to the Obama 08 campaign. How did that happen and what was that decision like? So um, I mentioned I worked for Hillary Clinton in, um, when, in my first role, um, and her team actually was recruiting me in 2007 to work on her campaign in Iowa. Um, but at the same time, at the time I was working for Ken Salazar, who was the senator from Colorado, who had an office on the seventh floor of the Hart Building. Um, and right down the hall from his office was Barack Obama's office. And we had a lot of staff who had started in Ken Salazar's office, namely Dennis McDonough, who ended up becoming one of Obama's foreign policy advisors and eventually his chief of staff. Carlos Monge, who started off in Salazar's office, became one of uh, Obama's senior policy people as well uh, on the Domestic Policy Council. And so there was a lot of uh, relationship, a close relationship between the two offices. And so when ultimately both Hillary and Obama announced, I had to figure out who I was going to go work for and kind of pick between the two. And it was a very tough decision because Hillary had obviously given me one of the first jobs I had uh, on Capitol Hill or in, in D.C. And then I was faced with feeling very inspired by Barack Obama and had this deep relationship with their whole staff. And they ultimately chose Obama. Um, and it was one of those things where you have moments in your life where you have forks in the road that change the path of your life, even though you don't always know it at the time or realize it at the time. Um, but for me, that was one of those moments. Um, and I went on to be President Obama's deputy Latino vote director in 2008. I was based in Chicago and helped to develop a strategy that until 2016, um, you know, uh, Barack Obama still got the highest uh, vote share, Latino vote share, any president candidate in history among the Latino community. For sure. And I mean, you worked on that campaign from early on, um, once you made your decision. Uh, were there any memorable moments from the campaign that stand out to you as you look back on it? Yeah, I think um, one of my favorite moments was um, I traveled the country specifically to Nevada, New Mexico, Colorado, Florida, um, and we trained hundreds of Latino organizers um, through Latino Camp Obamas. One of the things that we, you know, one of the legacies of President Obama was his um, community organizing experience and that it really made people, you know, his, his campaign was founded on a notion of community organizing and organizing in your own community. And so going and training organizers to empower their own communities to vote and show up was a really important part of our strategy and doing that very specifically tied uh, to the Latino community was very um, was very cool because I got to know lots of different people through that work. Um, I also got to co-lead these different trainings with Marshall Gans, Dr. Marshall Gans, who is one of the most prolific um, community organizers, and he teaches, done a ton of writing and research on community organizing and the story of self and the power of storytelling to engage and build community um, and, and empower people. Um, so he co-led those with us uh, in all of those states and was really cool to do that with somebody who's quite frankly like a legend in community yeah. organizing. Yeah, so you moved from that role into um, your role as a presidential aide at the White House doing something similar in the Office of Public Engagement. What was that transition like? 
Well, I think um, the transition from the campaign to the White House was one that was challenging for ways that I didn't think we anticipated. And a lot of people have done a lot of reflection. I've personally done a lot of reflection about this. You know, you work on a campaign where you don't have a lot of rules. Um, there aren't a lot of legal limitations around what you can and can't do, not like in a bad way, but just in a, if you want to go and do this event, you can do it and you don't really have to ask permission. You can kind of just you know, build the, the campaign and the program that you want. When we walked into the White House, we were, you know, Barack Obama was president of all of the United States of America. He wasn't just president of the people who voted for him. And he was very clear about that, that we this was not like a continuation of the campaign, it was like we had to talk to all Americans. And so um, it wasn't like very political anymore. We couldn't bring any of the lists that we had built on the campaign. We couldn't bring really any of the infrastructure that we built on the campaigns. So we were literally starting from scratch um, and building new kind of organizing structures at the White House, not to mention with the limitations of the government that we have to, um, that, you know, around, you know, you can't do this or there's something called the Anti-Lobbying Act. It's the Hatch, well, there's the Hatch Act and then there's like Anti-Lobbying Act that the federal government cannot encourage people to lobby Congress. Like there's actual law that prohibits that. So we could never say, go call your congressperson to vote for healthcare or go call your congressperson to vote for immigration. So those were the kind of like arcane rules that we didn't know like existed that kind of tied our hands behind our back sometimes. Definitely. And so you mentioned before um, with that, um, the organizing strategies you used on the campaign, were there any similarities between reaching out to all Americans um, and what, like specifically, what were the strategies that um, carried over from the campaign to the actual White House? Well, this will make me sound very old, but 2008, if you remember, was really the first campaign that where Twitter was even kind of a twinkle in people's eyes and really people started using it to organize. And so um, really being in the White House was how did we leverage those same tools to communicate with the public at a different scale? We're seeing how Trump is using that in a whole different level and scale. But when we started the White House, we were figuring out how we could use those tools in a way to engage all Americans in a bigger conversation that didn't require people who could just afford to show up and come to the White House or who were privileged enough to be in contact with somebody who worked at the White House. The use of technology really helped us to expand who we were able to communicate with and to get Barack Obama's message to a wider set of people. So working at the White House is a pretty unique opportunity. Do you have any behind-the-scenes stories from that time? Oh, I have a ton of stories. Um, one um, story that I will um, that kind of exemplifies like the bittersweetness of some of the days that we had there. You know, part of what I was core to my portfolio was working on the issue of immigration, which obviously is you know still a very challenging, unresolved topic. Um, you know, we spent a lot of the president's first term trying to move immigration forward, whether it was the Dream Act or a bigger comprehensive immigration reform bill. And at the end of the day. Um, one of the things that we had to really work to do was try to, you know, pass the DREAM Act in 2009 and 2010. And at the time, um, it was the lame duck session, it was right before Christmas, and there were a couple of key pieces of legislation, the DREAM Act and Don't Ask, Don't Tell, were on the floor of the Senate for a final vote. And the gay rights advocates had been pushing Don't Ask, Don't Tell for literally like 20 years, right? The repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And, um, and we had been pushing for the DREAM Act for close to, at that point, like 10 years. 
And um, the vote on the DREAM Act failed. This was like the week before Christmas. Um, it was a Saturday morning, I'll never forget it, because I was at the White House working. We were watching the vote from the West Wing at the White House. Um, and the DREAM Act failed, and then two minutes later, uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell passed. And so my, you heard some of our colleagues who were working on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, like crying tears of joy because something that they had worked on for so long finally passed. Right. And then right down the hall, you had a set of us who had been working to pass the DREAM Act who were in tears because something we had been working on for a very long time as well did not pass. And so the president was home that day and he walked up to where we were and gave hugs to the people who were in the office doing Don't Ask, Don't Tell and then came into the office where we were and saw me crying and he came over and gave me you know, a big hug and just said, we're not gonna stop fighting, right? And then that kind of turned into ultimately what turned into DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, and DAPA for their parents um, that he instituted in 2012 and ultimately in 2014. Um, and this fall, we will have a really important case in front of the Supreme Court as to whether the constitutionality of the DACA program, which will be heard on November 12th. So that was a little bit of like a, a kind of interesting story about, you know, the president as kind of the cheerleader in chief too to his staff. Um, who were working really hard on these issues he was pushing hard for, who obviously had very deep personal connections to them, um, but he also knew that like he had to come and cheer us up too. That's a great way to describe it, and that makes me think, was there anything you wish had gotten more attention um, from your time in the White House? You know, I think they uh, unquestionably the issue of immigration um, was one that, you know, when we came into the White House in 2009, we inherited the biggest financial crisis that, you know, in, in U.S. history we were facing, you know, huge job losses, the auto bailout. There were just so many things that were not, that were anticipated, but that he never would have wanted to have done if he didn't have to. And so, um, you know, we spent an inordinate amount of time when we first came in trying to pass the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, subsequently, like, spending so much staff time and bandwidth focusing on the recovery itself and making sure that the Recovery Act was implemented well and without corruption and actually creating the jobs we said they were going to create and providing the economic stimulation it needed to provide. And then we had health care reform and then we had a number of other issues that kind of came up after that, cap and trade and things like that. So at the end of the day, like immigration was one where we were pushing really hard for uh, bipartisan uh, work with Senator McCain at the time and Senator Lindsey Graham um, to come forward with something that had been last attempted in 2001, literally the last immigration true almost kind of real momentum around immigration reform happened a month before September 11th happened. And then September 11th happened with George W. Bush, and then we weren't able to do immigration or make attempts to do immigration reform really until 2006, 2007, right. and had some attempts there. And then again, momentum stalled, and then came back and Barack Obama was uh, elected into office. And so he came in, you know, again, with all these things he had inherited that he had to move forward. So it just became too late in the cycle. And quite frankly, like, it took two to tango. At the end of the day, we needed Republicans in the Senate and Republicans in the House to meet us halfway. Um, but there were some real big sticking points around immigration enforcement that really stalled out the negotiations and made Republicans walk away. For sure. And um, moving on into your work after the White House, um, you worked in the private sector. Um, 
but a common theme that has run through your career is empowering the Latinx community. Um, how has your work in the private sector enabled you to continue with that mission? Yeah, so um, I spent a fair amount of time. I worked after I left the White House. I went to go work at the Commerce Department where I worked for Secretary Penny Pritzker. I was her deputy chief of staff helping to manage a multi-billion dollar budget and literally tens of thousands of employees at the Commerce Department and um, got a real bird's eye view into issues like international trade and innovation and the census and uh, economic statistics and kind of how we um, as a country really see economic growth uh, and opportunity. And um, that really translated into the tech space where I spent a lot of time. Um, I worked at Google for a little bit um, and for a number of different um, tech founders. And I think for me, you know, any place you are, like when you're either a woman or you're a person of color or somebody who represents an underrepresented community, you're gay, whatever, you, when you're in these spaces where there aren't many of you, you always try to find ways to make, ensure that your perspective and your voice is reflected in the conversation. You know, any kind of um, place of privilege, whether it was the White House or Google or, you know, places where I would, you know, big philanthropic like donor tables where I've worked in the past, you know, I know that my lived experience is unique and it's unique, but there are millions of other people who have similar lived experience to what I've had. And so when I'm in those rooms, and I'm often the person with that only only that perspective, it's really important that that perspective gets um, elevated and that I bring that voice to, to the room that I'm, that I'm in. Absolutely, and, and you've described part of your job throughout your career as building those coalitions. And what does that really mean to you? And what are some strategies that you use to do that now? Yeah, I think for me it's building coalitions and networks. I think coalitions can be um, you know, uh, groups of people, sometimes unlikely bedfellows, like we pulled together um, with the immigration push that we had in the White House. We created a coalition called Bibles, Business, and Badges, which were faith leaders, um, business leaders, and law enforcement leaders who all want, wanted kind of comprehensive, sane, comprehensive immigration reform, who wanted like meaningful but compassionate immigration enforcement um, and we're willing to be kind of from both sides of the aisle to come together to build a coalition to try to move it forward. Ultimately, you know, and a coalition like that had never been built at that scale in the past. Ultimately, you know, it didn't you know, mean we actually passed it, but we helped shift the narrative on the issue of immigration at the time. Unfortunately, Donald Trump has like totally unraveled that and made immigration just about crazy, you know, rapists and murders and made it seem like every immigrant coming to this country is a rapist and a murderer. Um, but we had really shifted the conversation into one around creating, you know, knowing who's here is really important to creating a space where people feel like they can come forward for public safety, um, that, you know, immigrants contribute to this economy and to businesses in this country. They're business owners and they start businesses when they come here, but they're also helping businesses stay afloat in this country. And they are, and, and just from a place of faith, it was really important for us to have that kind of moral um, compass and guide as part of the conversation. I'd also say that um, building networks is a really important thing. I, you know, one of the core parts of my work in the Latinx community has been convening um, progressive Latinx folks. And so how we build a network of people um, across different industries and across different organizations um, to support uh, and advance our community is really kind of core to part of my own personal mission. Definitely. Um, 
So just moving on, uh, we're lucky enough to have you here at GU Politics as a fellow this semester, and you host a discussion group from 4 to 5.30 p.m. on Wednesdays. Yeah. Um, and your topic is winning in 2020. What will it take? Yeah. What do you think it will take to win in 2020? Well, what we're really looking at is trying to understand both from a meta-ideological perspective, what is it going to take to win the Democratic primary, and then what is it going to take to beat Trump. But beyond the kind of ideology and whether somebody is for Medicare for all or not for Medicare for all or for immigration or decriminalizing immigration, um, we're also looking at what are the set of tactics, like what does it take to run and win a presidential campaign in 2020? And what are the tactics that we need to understand? Things like digital targeting, questions around disinformation and the use of social platforms, like where are the lines around disinformation and misinformation and how we use the, the platforms? How do we think about using digital ad targeting and micro-targeting um, data um, you know, to, to find new voters? Um, what are, again, what are the nuances that we need to understand about who the electorate is? Again, both on the primary and democratic primary side, but then also what is a larger electorate need to look like and how do you actually get people out to vote there's so much social science research around like the right ways you push people out the door to actually go vote there are interesting ways about how campaigns target people and universes of voters like if you get a text or a knock on your door it is for a reason right you fall into a particular universe that a campaign has identified that either you need to be persuaded or you need to be turned out right like and they need to nudge you to go vote because they think they're you're in their camp so there there's a lot of data that goes into those decisions and so we're going to talk about both the meta what is it going to take to win in 2020 and what's it going to take to beat trump um from an ideological perspective but then to like tactically what is it going to take and what do we need to know about how campaigns run and what it will take to win. So we've got a final segment here on Fly on the Wall. It's called The Lightning Round. Cool. These are quick answers. Okay. You have your own podcast called Finding 46. Who's been your favorite guest to interview so far? Probably Joaquin Castro, who is the twin brother of Julian Castro, because I felt like we were sitting with the candidate himself. <laughs> uh, the next question is, you've posted this question on your Twitter, and now we want to pose it to you. Should apple cider be served hot or cold? <laughs> no question, hot. Um, my husband and I have a long argument. I think if it's cold, it's apple juice. It's not apple cider. <laughs> Who is one leader that you look up to? Um, Dolores Huerta, because she is literally 90 years old and she is still organizing. And um, you know she has like eight kids. Um, and was organizing in the you know since the, the the early 60s with the farm worker movement and it's just like her longevity and commitment to the cause uh, anytime I feel like I'm tired I just like look at her and I'm like I can't I cannot claim being tired Stephanie thank you so much for joining us today thank you guys so much thank you thank you for listening to this week's episode of fly on the wall if you liked what you heard this week Make sure you come to Stephanie's discussion group every Wednesday in the GU Politics office from 4 to 5.30. You can also hear Stephanie on her podcast called Finding 46. You can find it on Spotify, and it's all about who will be the 46th president of the United States. By interviewing reporters, former staffers, campaign managers, and more, Finding 46 looks into who will be the Democratic nominee in 2020, who can defeat Donald Trump, and who will be the 46th president. You can follow Fly on the Wall on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at Fly on the Wall Pod. Or if you have any comments or questions or just want to talk to us, 
send us an email, flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Have a great week.